In the late 70s, two dairy farmers from Pennsylvania felt God calling them to leave the farm and enter the mission field. Their names were Mark and Gloria Zook. And specifically, they felt God calling them to bring the gospel to UPGs, unreached people groups, uh, remote tribes of people who had never heard about Jesus before. But when they interviewed with the missions board, they were told that they weren't exactly prime candidates for this type of missions. Uh, They were already in their 30s and had a family with kids. Uh, Gloria had some health problems and they didn't have any education beyond high school. So they'd have to get Bible degrees and missions training. That would take at least four years. Uh, And then they'd have to go live among a remote tribe of people, completely isolated from civilization, which would be a major health risk. And then they'd have to get to know and learn about the people and their culture and their tribal language. That could take years. And then they'd have to develop a written language for that tribal language. That could take years. And then they'd have to translate the Bible into that written language. That would certainly take years. And then finally, they'd be be able to begin explaining to the tribe why they came and pray that by God's grace, the tribe would respond positively. So... Mark and Gloria, we're looking at at least a decade of really hard work. But God doesn't call his people to great things without giving them great grace and great strength and great power to do those things. Amen. So in 18 or sorry, 1983, uh, Mark and Gloria joined New Tribes Mission and settled among the Moke people of Papua New Guinea. And long story short, after many, 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 many years, they finally began teaching the Mok people the story of the Bible, or God's talk, as they called it. And they showed the Mok people a map of the world and showed them where they were in relation to the rest of the world. They'd never seen a map before, of course. And they showed them that God's talk had been taken from Israel to Asia and to Europe and to Africa and around the world and now to them. And so they started teaching through Genesis, talking about God, creation, and the fall of man. And they went through the stories of the Old Testament showing how the problem of sin was never really resolved. And then finally they got to the New Testament where Jesus, the answer to the problem of sin, comes into the world. And no one is like this man. And the Moke people were fascinated by the things he said and did. But then Jesus is betrayed and delivered up to be crucified. And the Moke people were horrified. Jesus, this incredible man, was put to death. But of course, Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected back to life. And I wanna show you a video clip of what happened when Mark explained to the Moke people what Jesus was accomplishing in his death and resurrection. Then I went back into the Old Testament stories and beginning with Abel, explained how Jesus was our acceptable sacrifice, just like Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. When I finally reached the story of Abraham and Isaac, I said to them, Listen, just as a real lamb was substituted for Isaac, so Christ's death and blood has been shed as a substitution for you. At that point, the lights really went on. I could see and hear them responding all over the crowd. I believe, I believe, I believe. 
I stood in their midst and asked them what they thought. From all over, responses came like this. I know I was born in sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin, that he died in my place. He is my sin bearer. I lived in fear trying to please the spirits, for I knew no other way to be free from sin. But God in his grace has sent you to us. I've heard it and believe the death and blood of Christ is payment for my sin. I believe it and God has forgiven me. On that day, almost all the village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. <laughs> Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grandma rejoicing that he believes, so does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itao, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. You know what happened to that day? An awakening happened. A great awakening. A revival is when the church and Christians experience a spirit-inspired renewal of passion for the word of God and the gospel of Jesus. But when, through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit moves among a people and they believe for the very first time, that's an awakening. It's when one's blind eyes see for the first time. It's when one's deaf ears hear for the first time. It's when one's dead hearts begin to beat with love for Jesus for the first time. The Mok tribe was awakened by the grace of God from the sleep of spiritual death to spiritual life and it brought about confessions of sin and professions of faith and then great celebration and rejoicing, and soon after that, the Mok people began bringing God's talk and the gospel to the surrounding tribes around them. They wanted them to know about Jesus too. They became missionaries themselves. How awesome. And in the Old Testament book of Jonah, which we're gonna look at today, we see another awakening, an awakening in the city of Nineveh. And like the stories of Noah's Ark and David and Goliath, the story of Jonah is a Sunday school favorite. But that poses a problem because often the stories we know best, I think, are the ones that over time cease to astound us. 
And so as we look at the book of Jonah this morning, maybe it will be the first time for some of you, and maybe it will be the hundredth time for others. I pray that regardless, we would all be astounded to see what God did and what God does. So we'll look at the story of Jonah, but before we do, let's pray and ask God just to bless our time together in his word. Lord, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Your word, which is truth and living and active and powerful. It's the word by which you reveal yourself to us, and really it's the word by which you reveal us to ourselves as well, what we're really like and what we really need. And so, Lord, I ask that you would reveal both to us, both to us this morning our greatest need and your gracious supply in Jesus. Amen. So I've titled this sermon, A Great Awakening and a Gloomy Sleeper, because our main character isn't terribly excited about bringing God's talk to Nineveh. His name is Jonah, son of Amittai, and we know very little about him except that he was kind of a gloomy guy who prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which was a few decades before the Assyrian invasion of Israel in 722 BC. So the book of Jonah begins with God saying to Jonah in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, what we know about Nineveh from the prophet Nahum, a couple books forward, is that Nineveh was a cruel, murderous, and bloody city full of lies and unceasing in evil. And the stench of their wickedness has come up to God as a very displeasing aroma. And he wants Jonah to arise and go and call out against the city. So how does Jonah respond? Verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah doesn't just want to get away from Nineveh. He wants to get away from God. And notice, especially as we keep on reading, that Jonah keeps going down and down and down. The author's trying to show us something. And that is that life always takes a downward turn when we try to live it apart from God. Life always takes a metaphorically downward turn when we try to live it apart from God. It may not seem that way at first. It may not feel that way at first. But soon, like the prodigal son, we'll be alone and empty and longing for home. And this raises the question, why is Jonah doing this? Why such a strong reaction against going to Nineveh? Is it because Jonah's shy and doesn't think he can speak well enough to do it? Is it because Jonah's lazy and doesn't want to put in the effort? Is it because Jonah's afraid and doesn't know what the Ninevites might do to him? Well, we'll find out in a bit, but here's what happens next. Jonah's on this ship headed to Tarshish and God sends a massive storm upon the sea. And everyone on board the ship is terrified and crying out to their gods, except who? Jonah. And where's Jonah? 
Second half of verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. How ironic. The pagan sailors are terrified, while the one whose sin and rebellion occasioned the storm is sound asleep, unfazed, undisturbed. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? What are you doing sleeping at a time like this? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. How ironic. The pagan captain is telling Jonah, just as God did in verse two, to arise and to call out to his God. Have you ever had an experience like this before? Where you know God's speaking to you but you ignore him? and then you hear his words from someone else. I remember a particular time when I was a teenager hanging out at the wrong place with the wrong people and someone there said to me, you don't belong here. And those words pierced my heart like an arrow because they were the very words I had felt God saying to me earlier, you don't belong here, Dylan. Sometimes God uses unlikely people in unlikely situations to get our attention, amen? So, then the sailors cast lots, and the lot falls upon Jonah, which means they've determined somehow that Jonah is the cause of the storm. And they ask him, what's going on, Jonah? Why has this storm come upon us, and who are you? Verses 9 and 10. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. How ironic. Jonah claims to be a man who fears the Lord, but it's the pagan sailors who fear him the most. And then they ask him, Jonah, you're the man of God. What do we do? Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, I think one of possibly three things is happening here. Either, number one, Jonah is sacrificing himself for the sailors. God, take me, but spare them. Or number two, Jonah knows that he deserves death, and he's prepared to pay for his sins. Or, number three, Jonah knows that the only way to escape God's calling is to die. I'll let you decide whether you think this is a noble act, self-sacrifice, or a just act, paying the price for his sin, or an escape act, choosing to die rather than obey God. And so the sailors throw him overboard, right? Well, not yet. First, they row harder and harder and try to get back to dry land because they don't want Jonah to die. How ironic. The pagan sailors do everything in their power to save Jonah while Jonah isn't willing to lift a finger for the pagan city of Nineveh. But the wind and the waves only grow more and more violent and the sailors don't know what to do. And so then they throw him overboard, right? Well, not yet. Secondly, they call out to the Lord in verse 14. 
and say this. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. How ironic. The pagan sailors are more willing to pray to God than Jonah and they also seem more conscious of sin and the value of human life than Jonah. And then the sailors finally throw Jonah overboard. Verse 15, and the sea ceases from its raging. And then we hear about the pagan sailors one last time, verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Wow. When the sailors see how the Lord deals with his rebellious prophet, chasing him down and sending the storm and plunging him into the depths of the sea. Somehow they all say, the God of Jonah, that's the God we want to follow to. <laughs> this God may have been a God the sailors would have done well to avoid, or so it seemed. But somehow they all say, that's who we want to follow. I think a divinely appointed awakening happened that day. Eyes were opened. Hearts began to beat. But where's Jonah? He's sinking to the bottom of the ocean floor. Have God's plans been thwarted? Well, here's what happens next. Last verse of the chapter, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Wow, who saw that one coming? That God would sovereignly appoint a giant fish to swallow up Jonah to save him. Incredible. And then in chapter 2, it begins with Jonah in the belly of the fish praying to God. And as I read Jonah's prayer, listen carefully for any hint of repentance, okay? Verses 1 through 9. Then Jonah, or sorry, yes, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, here's what Jonah's prayer tells us. God answers prayer. God is sovereign over Jonah's predicament. Jonah came face to face with death, but God saved him and he's thankful to be alive. And the last line, salvation belongs to the Lord. So, all of Jonah's theology seems right. But 
Is there a single whiff of repentance? We've all prayed prayers like Jonah's before, haven't we? Lord, thank you for sparing me from the consequences of this sin. Isn't it possible to be a thankful sinner but not a repentant sinner? Or, Lord, I'm so scared. Please, don't let anybody find out about this sin, Lord, please. Isn't it possible to be a terrified sinner but not a repentant sinner? Or, Lord, this sin is killing me. It's eating me alive and I'm so miserable. Isn't it possible to be sorrowful over the pain of sin but not the sin of sin? Jonah's certainly thankful to be alive, but has his heart really been changed at all? The Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks once said that repentance is the vomit of the soul. Repentance is the vomit of the soul, which means that Truly repentant people vomit up their sin in all its ugliness and grossness and awfulness and then acknowledge it as the vile thing it is and then refuse to return to it just as you'd never return to a spot of puke on the floor and then stoop down to lap it all up back into your mouth again. And if that sounds disgusting, consider how sin looks before the eyes of the holy God. Consider how sin looks before the eyes of the holy God. So to me, Jonah's prayer seems a little too neat and tidy to be one of true repentance, and that's because I don't see any vomit. No mention of his running away from God. No mention of his disobeying God. No mention of any sin. And what happens next? Verse 10 And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So God speaks to the fish, and then Jonah's puked out of its mouth. Very interesting. One commentator writes, the word vomited is a very strong negative term in the Hebrew. This may have been Yahweh's reaction to the flowery prayer of Jonah. But then the most surprising thing happens. Chapter three, verses one and two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God in his grace is not giving up on Jonah, and he recommissions him to bring God's talk to Nineveh, and how does Jonah respond to this time? Verse 3a, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, and then Jonah preaches what is probably the Guinness Book of World Records shortest sermon ever, verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was all he said. Eight words in the English. Only five words in the Hebrew. Od arbaim yom v'ninevei nepechet. 
Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, before we go on, remember that these were real people in real time and space. And Nineveh had about as many people as modern day Kent, Washington. I know that doesn't sound too impressive, but that's over 120,000 people. And look at what happens in Nineveh, verses five through nine. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say that they believed in God. The Ninevites believed God. There's a big difference between the two. Many people believe in God. They believe that God exists. But few actually take him at his word. The Ninevites believed God. And it's incredible that the response of the whole city is to fast and put on sackcloth, which were public signs of repentance, and to cry out to God and to turn away from their wickedness and evil. And it's incredible because this was no turn or burn sermon. Jonah didn't say, if you repent, then God will relent. He just said, in 40 days you're gonna be destroyed, and that's that. That's just a burn sermon. How would you have responded to a message like Jonah's? Maybe you would have disbelieved him and written off his words as silliness. Or maybe you would have decided to just live it up and say, well, I'm gonna be destroyed anyway, so I might as well have some fun until then. Or maybe you would have tried really, really hard to be good and hoped that in the end God would see your goodness and choose to not destroy you. Or maybe you'd fall on your face, repenting and crying out to the holy God for mercy, knowing what your sin deserves, but also knowing that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So how does God respond? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. The Ninevites are saved by God's grace. Praise God. We'll see them in heaven one day. Isn't that amazing? Now, we can understand this verse from two perspectives. Number one, the human perspective. 
And number two, the divine perspective. From the human perspective, it appears that God relented because the Ninevites repented. And it's true that had the Ninevites not repented, God would not have relented. But from the divine perspective, from the perspective of the God who knows all things and controls all things and whose word goes forth and does not return empty but accomplishes precisely what he desires, this was all part of God's plan from the beginning. God knew how the Ninevites would respond and not just that, He gave them the grace to respond in the way that they did. And we know this is true because passages like Acts 5.11 and Acts 11.18 and 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 all tell us that God grants repentance, which leads to life. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. What I'm saying is that It is no coincidence that an entire city believed and repented and was saved. No. An awakening happened in Nineveh that day. This was a movement of God's Holy Spirit among a people who were blind and deaf and dead. What happened to Nineveh is precisely what would happen 800 years later on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful way through the preaching of the Apostle Peter and 3,000 people in one day believed upon Christ and were saved. And the Lord daily was adding to that number, Acts 2.47 says. And what happened to Nineveh is precisely what would happen 2,300 years later during the Protestant Reformation when the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful way across Europe through the preaching of Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and Ulrich Zwingli and Heinrich Bollinger and John Calvin. And what happened to Nineveh is precisely what would happen 2,500 years later during the First Great Awakening when the Holy Spirit moved in a powerful way across the English colonies in America through the preaching of guys like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And what happened to Nineveh is precisely what would happen 2,700 years later when the Holy Spirit moved among a little tribe in Papua New Guinea through the preaching of Mark Zook. God has been in the awakening business for a long time. And we ought to pray to God for more and more awakenings. Amen. But how does Jonah respond to all this? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. (sighs) Jonah didn't react so strongly against the idea of going to Nineveh because he was shy 
or because he was lazy or because he was afraid. He reacted so strongly because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He basically says, I told you, God, I told you. You're always being so gracious and merciful toward those who don't deserve it. I knew this would happen. Now, Jonah commits a logical fallacy here, which philosophers call a self-defeating statement, or as I like to call it, sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Because in rebuking God for showing grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it, Jonah saws off the branch of grace and mercy that he's sitting on. Of course, Jonah isn't aware that he's sitting on a branch of grace and mercy, and that's because he thinks he's worthy of God. And this is his fundamental problem because he's not worthy of God, and he desperately needs God's grace and mercy. And God's saving of the Ninevites irks Jonah so much that he then asks God to take his life because he'd rather be dead than live a life where he and the Ninevites are counted among the people of God together. And then gloomy Jonah goes and sits outside the city in the scorching heat of the sun And God, in his grace, appoints a plant to grow, to come up over Jonah, to give him shade, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah is so thankful for the plant. But when the morning dawns the next day, God appoints a worm to attack the plant so that it withers. And Jonah is once again sitting in the scorching heat of the sun. And again, he asks God to take his life because he is so angry that this worm has destroyed this helpless plant. And then the book of Jonah ends with these final words from God, verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And that's it. That's the end of the book. And I think the book ends this way without us knowing Jonah's response to God's question to pose the question to us, the readers, as well. So, What's the answer? Well, I think part of the answer is that it is a cold and heartless and evil thing for one of God's people to pity a plant more than people, and especially lost people, and anyone who does really cares only about himself. And this is exactly what God's question exposes Jonah for, uh, for being a a man who cared only about his life, his well-being, his comfort, his eternity. But the love and grace of the God who cared so much for Jonah should have moved Jonah's heart to 
love and show grace to and care for others and to desire that they might come to know this God too. And of course, this question is posed to us as well and we need to ask this of ourselves here. Do we care more about ourselves, our life, our well-being, our comfort than the salvation of the lost? When was the last time we found ourselves on our knees praying for our unbelieving family members or friends? When was the last time we had our unbelieving neighbors over to our house for a meal? When was the last time we asked God to give us boldness to initiate spiritual conversation with our unbelieving coworkers? When was the last time we invited our unbelieving friends from school to church? When was the last time we prayed for UPGs, unreached people groups around the world? When was the last time we generously gave to a missionary or a missions organization to support their ministry to the lost? When was the last time we generously gave to a local church to support their ministry to the lost? When was the last time we wept for the lost? I'll tell you what, a little over a month ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit a missionary family in North Central Africa. And in this city the family lives in, and in this particular part of town, everyone is Muslim. Everyone. And four times a day, the mosques throughout the city broadcast these calls to prayer over intercoms. And everyone, no matter where they are or what they're doing, falls to the ground and prays to a God who doesn't exist. And it's hard to not be crushed by the sight. To know that this sea of people made in the image of God are so lost and are going to hell unless the Holy Spirit does something and he does, but oh, I pray that our hearts would be crushed for the lost. And maybe the best way for that to happen is to reflect upon the love and grace and care that God gave to us when we were hopelessly lost. Now let's answer another part of this question. Is it wrong for God to pity Nineveh and show them grace and mercy? Answer, Psalm 115, verse three. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, however he wants. And because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he is pleased to show grace and mercy and patience and love to the uttermost. And anyone who would say, no God, you can't do that. You can't show them grace and mercy, not them. Saws off the branch of grace and mercy that they're sitting on. Now, in closing, I want to show four things the book of Jonah teaches us about salvation. 
and then I'll give an application for each one, okay? Four things the book of Jonah teaches us about salvation. First thing, God is the initiator of salvation. God is the initiator of salvation. In the book of Jonah, God has a plan to save the Ninevites, and God commissions Jonah to go to them. This wasn't Jonah's idea. He didn't even wanna go. And what this shows us is that God is sovereign over who is marked out for salvation. And scripture tells us that this marking out for salvation occurred in eternity. Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five tells us that God chose us, his people, in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Chosen, predestined in Christ for adoption to himself, when? before the foundation of the world, and according to what? The purpose of his will. And Revelation chapter three and chapter 13 and chapter 20 and chapter 21 tell us about something called the Lamb's Book of Life, which is a collection of all the names of those who will be saved, which God wrote before the foundation of the world. Now, it's probably not a literal book, but a metaphor for what theologians call God's eternal decree of election or God's sovereign marking out for salvation which occurred in eternity. Application? We mustn't demand that God save or not save anyone. We mustn't demand that God save or not save anyone. God is not obligated to save anyone or to show anyone grace. If he was obligated to show grace, it wouldn't be called grace. It would be called what you deserve. Grace is a gift. It's undeserved, but it's freely given to those whom the Lord chooses. And on the other side of the coin, we have no right to tell God, no, not that person or those people, Lord. Don't save them. If we demand that God withhold salvation from anyone, we're essentially saying to God that we're better than them or we're more deserving than them or we're more worthy than them and we're denying the grace of God that's been given to us because we're not better we're not deserving in the slightest, and we're worthy of nothing, and God could have justly said to you and me, no, not them. I will not save them. We mustn't demand that God save or not save anyone. Second thing the book of Jonah teaches us about salvation, God is the bringer of salvation. God is the bringer of salvation. In the book of Jonah, God chooses the most unlikely of characters to carry out his plan of redemption. 
Jonah tries to run from God and tries to hide from God and tries everything in his power to escape God's plan. And if God had wanted to save the Ninevites earlier, he would have just sent a better prophet. But he didn't. And he chose Jonah for a reason. And I think part of that reason was to show us that salvation is according to his timing, not ours. God is sovereign over where and when people are saved. Here's the application. We must trust God's timing in salvation. We must trust God's timing in salvation. In the book of Jonah, we get a glimpse into the God's activity behind the scenes before Nineveh is saved. And when Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh, after being chased down and the storm and the fish and everything else, there is no doubt in the reader's mind that this was God's doing. This was God's doing. God carried Jonah along and brought him to Nineveh, right? But, of course, we don't always get this privileged look behind the scenes. And we won't always understand the complexities and mysteries surrounding salvation. But stories like Jonah can give us confidence to know that God is always at work behind the scenes to bring about salvation precisely where and when he pleases. We must trust God's timing in salvation. Third thing the book of Jonah teaches us about salvation is that God is the accomplisher of salvation. God is the accomplisher of salvation. In the book of Jonah, we see an awakening in the city of Nineveh. Jonah simply delivered God's words from his mouth to the Ninevites' ears. But the Holy Spirit carried those words in his sovereign power to the place that no voice could reach, the Ninevites' hearts. The Apostle Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I planted the seeds of the gospel, and Apollos, another minister, watered those gospel seeds, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. This means that the results of our preaching and proclaiming must be left to God. He alone gives the growth. He alone carries the word to the heart. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia by the Holy Spirit, and then she accepted the message of the gospel. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again by the Holy Spirit, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, God has shown into our hearts by the Holy Spirit to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
No one sees the beauty of Christ or hears his voice or loves him until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and opens their ears and gives life to their lifeless hearts. What this shows us is that God is sovereign over actually saving people himself. Application, we must give all glory to God alone in salvation. We must give all glory to God alone in salvation. We may think we have led someone to the Lord or helped someone to find God, but truly it is God who providentially leads us to himself and finds us because it's we who are lost, not God. We must give all glory to God alone in salvation. And the fourth and final thing the book of Jonah teaches us about salvation is that God is the keeper of salvation. God is the keeper of salvation. In the book of Jonah, Jonah gives God every reason in the world to just leave him and give him over to his sin. God pursues him down and down and down, even into the depths of the sea. And what this shows us is that God never abandons his people. Salvation is a gift God gives, and salvation is a gift God preserves, and the truth is, if it were ever possible for any of us to lose our salvation, we all would have already lost it. we all would have already lost it. Application, we must trust. In the words of Corey ten Boom, or Corey ten Boom, the double O in the Dutch is actually pronounced O, we must trust in the words of Corey ten Boom that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. What a great quote. We must trust that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. If you belong to God, know that he will never give up on you. And he will chase you down. And he will pursue you even into the depths of your darkest moments of sin. Not because you are just so lovable, but because he is love. He is love. We must trust that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. So, God is the initiator, bringer, accomplisher, and keeper of our salvation, and we praise him for it. Now, there's one last thing I've left unsaid, maybe the most important thing of this whole sermon, and that is this. Nineveh is a picture of all of us. And our salvation, like Nineveh's, is possible today because God has sent to us another prophet, a greater prophet, and a greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. Like Jonah, Jesus was commissioned by God the Father to bring a message to a people whose sin had come up before him. And like Jonah, 
Jesus went down and down and down, not in disobedience, but in obedience, when he left his home in heaven and became a man and entered into our world, drowning and dying in sin. And like Jonah, Jesus faced a great and terrible storm. Not a storm that his sin brought about, for he was sinless, but a storm that our sin brought about, the storm of God's wrath. And like Jonah, Jesus took the plunge into certain death to calm that storm. Not as an escape act, but as the greatest saving act the world has ever seen or known. And like Jonah, Jesus spent three days in darkness, but emerged to live again so that all who will turn away from their sin and trust in him will be saved. This, the gospel, is the message that by God's grace has saved some untold billions of people throughout human history awakening them from the sleep of spiritual death to spiritual life. Are you among this number? If so, rejoice in what God has done. Be astounded by what God has done. And if not, turn to Jesus today that God may relent of disaster and save you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the salvation that you have planned from before the foundation of the world and the salvation that you brought to us in Jesus and the salvation that he has accomplished on the cross and in our hearts when we were awakened by your Holy Spirit and Lord, the salvation that you keep sealed by the promise that he who began a good work in us will bring us to completion. And in the promise of Jesus when he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And when Jesus prayed to you in John chapter 17 that not a single one of his people would be lost. Lord, everything we have is a gracious and merciful gift from your hands. And we thank you for continuing to show us grace and that your mercies for your people never come to an end but are new every morning as long as you choose to give us breath. Lord, I pray that as we desire to follow you and know you and love you, that more and more our hearts would be moved to love the things that you love, including people, including lost people in need of a savior. So Lord, set us on mission and give us your strength and power for your glory alone. Amen.